0: This podcast sponsored by the American Society for Information Science and Technology. Since 1937, ACEST has been the Society for Information Professionals, leading the search for new and better theories, techniques, and technologies to improve access to information. By the IA Summit, this year your peers and industry experts spoke about how topics such as social networking, gaming, patterns, tagging, taxonomies, and a wide range of IA tools and techniques help users experience information. And by Boxes and Arrows. Since 2001, Boxes and Arrows has been a peer-written journal promoting contributors who want to provoke thinking, push limits, and teach a few things along the way. For more events happening all over the world, be sure and check out events.boxesandarrows.com. In her presentation, Adaptive Past Leah Bewley explains how it is possible for solo practitioners to achieve the creative results that teams do by adopting the methods of larger UX groups. She teaches techniques that any individual can use to generate and refine ideas, outlining flexible and simple activities that can be used quickly wherever they're needed. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers.
1: So uh, thanks Brandon again for that introduction. And actually uh, before I begin, I just wanna thank all of you for uh, being in the audience and also uh, for being here every year and making the IA Summit something that is totally Revitalizing, refreshing, exciting, and that I want to come back to year after year. So thanks, thanks to all of you for that. Um, So I'm here today to talk about how to be a user experience team of one. I'll stay up here so I don't block the projection. Um, So really quickly, actually, I'd be interested to know how many of you, how many of you actually work in organizations where you're not a team of one? You work with other user experience professionals. It's a big number of you. Okay. And how many of you our user experience team of one. How many of you are the sole representative of user experience in your organization? Okay, that's about half of you, too. Um, So it's pretty evenly split here. Uh, When I talk about user experience teams of one, certainly what I'm thinking is uh, it encompasses the second half of you, the people who work on your own. But I'm also talking about people who ever find themselves in situations where they have to work on a project by themselves as the sole representative of user experience with other people who do business analysis or uh, development or any other number of specialties. So when you look at it that way, I think we all sort of function from time to time as a user experience team of one. So what does that person do, the user experience team of one? Well, odds are pretty good they do a number of different things. They tend to wear a lot of different hats, and it may be some of these things, uh, competitive analysis and research and usability testing. It may be things you don't even see up here. What I'm going to focus on today is one aspect of this and that's design. Uh, And I should clarify, when I say design, I'm really speaking about kind of information architecture style design, uh, interaction uh, design, things that entail wireframes, things that entail storyboards, things that have task flows. I'm not really talking here about uh, graphic design, mood boards, fonts and colors. Though in fact, some of you may be doing that stuff too, that's not gonna be the focus of this discussion. So why design? Well, there's a good reason actually. I think that we as a professional community have been really successful in the last couple of years at coming up with lots of reliable and repeatable techniques for a lot of these different things, right? So there's a million different ways to do research now, and we've got prototyping that runs the gamut from low fidelity to ultra-high fidelity. But when it comes to design, we don't have so many good, reliable, repeatable techniques. In many respects, it's still just you and this, and that is a lonesome proposition. Or maybe it's you and the screen with a cursor, a blinking cursor, but that's not really any better. So um, to illustrate specifically why this is a problem, if you'll indulge me, I'd actually like to share my story. So as Brandon mentioned, I work at Adaptive Path. I'm an experienced designer there. But before I joined Adaptive Path, I was a user experience team of one at a firm called Barclays Global Investors. Uh, There, I was responsible for many of the things that I've just described and uh, I worked with other people in the organization in this way where I'd receive requirements from business people and they would come in the form of Word documents and Excel spreadsheets and sometimes I'd get wireframes and PowerPoint decks and all kinds of crazy inputs. I'd sort of run them through the mill of experience design and then out would pop something to be built and the developers would implement it. And this was a pretty good uh, sort of process except for I had a dirty secret and I'm gonna share it with you. And that was, I had very little confidence that what I was presenting as a design was in fact the one optimal solution to the problem. And the reason that this wasn't great uh, was that sometimes we would deliver products that maybe weren't ideal, that they didn't quite work in the way that people expected them to, or there was some uh, deviation from expectation around it. And when that would happen, I would fight like mad to argue that the requirements process was busted and somebody had to fix it. Or I would pin the blame on the developers and say they hadn't implemented what I've been thinking of. And I was holy throughout all of this. (laughs) Well, after a while it occurred to me that there might be more to professional satisfaction than just trying to instill a crisis of confidence in business analysts and developers. So I decided to go to an organization (laughs) where I could explore what that might be. And that was Adaptive Path. So I'd known about Adaptive Path for a long time. I was really excited to be joining them. I had a lot of respect for them. I showed up on my first day with a grin uh, that took over my whole face. And then on my first project, uh, the first day that I started designing, I walked into a room and was handed um, a Sharpie and some paper and and told to start sketching a lot of ideas. And uh, this scared the bejesus out of me, actually, because... The way that I had been designing up until this point was uh, I would well, I I'd retreat into my cubicle for a few days and I'd put on some headphones and I'd sort of block out the world and I would sort of crank, crank, crank and come up with this thing that was sort of the best design as far as I saw it and then I would do this dog and pony show and try to convince everybody that that was in fact the best design. And this was something that I had never done before. I had never been called upon to just kind of brainstorm a lot and crank out a lot of ideas in a really short amount of time. And uh, so it was terrifying, but there was something that was good, which was that I was working with other designers in the process. One of them actually just introduced me. That's Brandon over there on the right. Um, so the cool thing is, even though I was uh, scared to death, working together, we generated a wide variety and volume of ideas really quickly. It was impressive. Um, and this was really my first exposure to this idea of generative design, which I've since learned is something that they teach in a lot of uh, sort of classical design programs, but they sure as hell didn't teach it in library school, so it was new to me. Um, and so generative design is this idea that in order to get to this, the end state, some wireframe that is the right wireframe, you actually have to start with a process of going wide and building out a lot of different ideas, and you focus on volume and you focus on variety, and you don't just limit yourself to one thought. And then you do that for a while, and at some point you you sort of reach this moment where you say, hey, we've done enough brainstorming, we've done enough generation, now we're going to kind of turn the corner and we're going to go narrow. We're going to pick the ideas that have the strongest uh, sort of elements, and we're going to refine them into something that becomes the final solution. And through the course of this, certain ideas are stronger and they have more sticking power and you start to play with them and combine them and recombine them and at the end, you have the best possible manifestation of a solution for the problem at hand. So... This was eye-opening for me, to say the least, and what was really cool was that I started to observe that even in my own practice, when I was working by myself, when I didn't have two other designers helping me, I was changing the way that I worked. I was forcing myself to generate ideas before I find ideas. This got me thinking that there's something in this that I could share with other people who were in the plight that I had been in in the organization that I was in before, and uh, that leads me to my goal here today with all of you. So what I want to do is I want to share the techniques that I've learned at Adaptive Path for generative design that can be uh, applied and show you how they can be applied into an organization where you're either a solo practitioner or where you have to work on your own a lot. Uh, And I will also say sort of the most important thing, and Jared couldn't have set me up better this morning, uh, this is not a uh, dogma. This is not a methodology. Uh, I am incredibly respectful and sensitive to the fact that you Uh, When you're in a user experience team of one, you're resource constrained enough as it is, and it's really hard to get somebody to put another box in a Gantt chart for you, so these things need to be done quickly, they need to be lightweight, you need to be able to pick up a pen and paper, and you need to be able to do them in 15 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour. So that's what I want to share with you now. So these ideas fall into roughly three categories. Uh, The first category is all around brainstorming, which I've touched upon a little bit. The second category actually uh, is about leveraging the people who you do have around you. So even if you're not working with a bunch of other user experience professionals, odds are pretty good you do work with other people and that they have ideas that you can actually put to practice for yourself. And then the last is once you've done all this brainstorming and you've enlisted all this help, how do you actually identify what ideas are the strongest ideas? I'm going to do all this, and I want to use an example, actually, because I think that will make some of this stuff a little bit more real. Um, this is Evite. Uh, we have never worked with Evite before. They're not a client of ours. But uh, from time to time at Adaptive Path, we have conversations internally about the organizations that we would most like to help, and we are in agreement that Evite is an awesome product. We love it. We use it all the time. But the user experience, I'm afraid to say, could be much improved. Um, so. With apologies and and respects to Evite, we're gonna use that as our example. And if there's anybody in the audience from Evite, come talk to me afterwards, because AP wants to help you. Uh... (laughs) Okay, so this is what you have on Evite Evite right now. It's a little bit small, but basically the first step for creating an invitation is you pick from some category. So is it a birthday party? Is it a dinner party? And then you uh, get to this second step where you have the invitation that you fill out, kind of like a form. And then you have the third step where you uh, figure out who you want to invite and you send it off. So what if your job was to fix this? Where would you start? Well, maybe the goal here is to decrease drop-offs in the invitation creation process. And if that's the case, then sure, you could argue maybe three steps is more steps than one, so you can streamline it a little bit. Or maybe each of these things look kind of dissimilar and feel a little bit uh, inconsistent. So maybe you could create a more cohesive experience. Or maybe there are some rabbit holes in some of these places where people are getting lost like the customize your invitation. Maybe it's hard to get out of that. But some of this stuff is is really kind of just speculation. And you can use user research and you can do competitive analysis. And that stuff can inform your thinking around what you're going to do. But ultimately, how do you figure out what you put on the page in relationship to what? And what's the flow? And what is sort of moment to moment, what is that experience going to be like? It's still, in so many ways, this problem. Well, one thing you do is you brainstorm a lot. Uh, and this gets back to that uh, sort of light bulb over my head for generative design. This, this is sort of the first half of generate ideas. And that's uh, what these techniques are sort of all about. Um, I love this visualization because it not only shows you that you're going to generate a lot of ideas, but it also shows you that you're going to do it within Rails a little bit. Because when I think of brainstorming, that sounds like a very blue sky concept. And that uh, makes my mind go blank, actually. So uh, for me, to do productive brainstorming, I actually have to give myself kind of reliable constraints. And so for me, knowing that I'm going to brainstorm in this area and not in this area and not in this area is helpful. So one of the um, first sort of set of techniques that we use at Adaptive Path is about giving yourself good constraints. And to do this, we use a lot of conceptual frameworks. Conceptual frameworks come in a lot of different shapes and sizes, and this is by no means an exhaustive list, but these are the ones that I see going up on whiteboards a lot around the office. Um, So spectrums are pretty simple. It's just a continuum, and there's an anchor on each end, and you sort of fill in ideas along the the, uh, continuum. Two-by-twos are slightly, uh, slightly more complex than spectrums. It's like a spectrum on top of a spectrum, but then you have these interesting areas of overlap in the quadrants that you can start to play with. Uh, And then grids are, again, more overlap, more spectrums, but uh, higher volume, and you're you're focused on sort of filling in the grid. So what if we took our Evite example and we said, okay, I've got a spectrum, and my spectrum is all about uh, familiarity with the site. So you've got first timers on one end, and you've got experts on the other. What does the invitation creation process look like if it's for a first timer? Well, maybe it's something like this. Maybe there's a really strong, kind of friendly, welcome message. There's... Some supportive text to get you into it easily and like a big kind of crunchy friendly button to just kind of get started. Or what if you move further along the spectrum? What if it's um, not so for time, not just a first timer, not just an expert, you sort of need uh, still an easy way to kind of get help if you want it in the guide me area, but if you want to jump right in, you also have the option of picking a template. Or if it's, truly an expert application. Maybe you really do have this sort of high productivity tool that's kind of like a database dump and you can see all of the invitations you've created and you can create new ones and you can sort of track it in that way. Well, you look at these things and whichever one you pick, they're, they're pretty different. You get a sense that they have strongly uh, sort of unique interface, interfaces and strongly unique kind of experience implications as well. So just using a spectrum gives you a little bit of variety in that way. And then if you sort of evolve to a two-by-two, again, you can still have your kind of spectrum of first-timer to expert, and maybe we add an extra layer of sort of manual to automatic. What does that look like? Maybe down here in the first-timer manual section, you still have sort of strong, kind of friendly messaging, but you have these big helpful buttons that let you jump right into a certain part of the process, right? Or up here for the first-timer who wants to be a little more automatic, again, friendly messaging, super important, but maybe they want to jump right into a certain template right away. This one, incidentally, is actually very similar to what they have on the site right now, which tells you a little bit about the frame of mind that Evite is trying to kind of tap into when they create their invitations. The automatic expert, this could be, I mean, who knows, this is like the, the ultimate kind of invitation configurator. It's a forum, and you fill out the form fields, and then you press go, and poof, out comes this perfect invitation. Or, down here in the manual expert corner, maybe this is the, uh, the real sort of web 2.0 invitation. This is like 37 signals creating Evite. You can, like, click into a field, you can start controlling it, and it's all kind of happening in line. Again, four very different looking options with really different implications for the experience for the user. And then grids, which again give you kind of a space for uh, continuums like the first timer to expert continuum on the left, but they also give you options to just play around with different buckets that are kind of interesting to you. So what if Evite is all about designing the most awesome looking invitation you can imagine? Or what if it's all about tracking conversations with your friends or interactions with your friends and then you can start to think, well, if I, what's a guided experience that's all about me and my friends look like? And you can start to brainstorm around that kind of thing. Uh, one other area that we, uh, I think, consciously or unconsciously brainstorm within a lot is by playing with words, by sort of mixing and matching different word concepts. Um, we do this informally just in the conversations that we have, but if you took a, more, a slightly more formal process to it, you can actually do some pretty interesting stuff. So, these are just some words that I pulled off of a pattern library. This is welly.com. Um, if you look at some of these individual words, they have very strong uh, interface implications. What, is, what comes into your head when I say slider? Something sort of specific, right? Uh, a film strip. That has a pretty strong interface implication. Um, but when you start to mix and match them, you get this really interesting kind of my chocolate your peanut butter experience that creates something new. So for this case, for Evite, I thought, what happens if you mix and match? modules and icons. Well, maybe this. Maybe you have this invitation workspace, and you can drag modules into it and sort of rearrange them however you want to. And maybe there's this really strong, friendly, iconographic kind of call to action. This is one way you might do it. You can imagine mixing and matching words kind of ad infinitum to come up with lots and lots of different combinations. Um, The last area sort of that I uh, would recommend for brainstorming is probably pretty uh, basic. A lot of you may be doing this already, but it's I think one of the most fundamental things in my practice, so it bears mentioning, which is keeping an inspiration library. Uh, so, I use Screen Grab, which is a plug-in for Firefox, and when I um, you know, conduct my life on the web, basically, I'm always looking for interesting examples. So, if I find some cool page, I get, I sort of right-click and I take a screen grab of the whole page, and then it goes into iPhoto where I store them all. And then every time I start a new project, I sort of reference my inspiration library for inspiration. And this is. Super helpful from a kind of competitive analysis perspective, but it's also actually really good from a uh, just kind of Rorschach test kind of thing because when I'm uh, just trying to develop ideas, it's helpful for me to see sort of, pat, uh, sort of structures and kind of patterns and see things in these sort of ink blots that help me to imagine what might work in my uh, project. So I did that for Evite. I went through my inspiration library, and I came across Vox, which has some really fun interface elements that I thought I could do something with, right? So up here at the top, you've got these really uh, sort of uh, interesting, kind of compelling, iconographic kind of call to action things. You've got this sort of feature area that doesn't feel too markety. You've got some interesting kind of tag stuff down here at the bottom. So using this stuff for inspiration, what can I do with Evite? You can certainly see that this uh, has resemblance to its inspiration, but there's actually some interesting uh, sort of subtle differences here. Um, the sort of call to action at the top for Evite actually lets me start to feature certain things that Evite could potentially be really good at. One, of course, being creating an invitation, but another helping me organize events and organize the people that are around that event. Or maybe having a community where we all discuss how we sort of plan for our sort of social lives. Uh, down here in the middle, this thing that was a sort of a feature on Vox, now becomes maybe a place where I can start to see the other Evites that other people have created and get inspired by that and start to use those. And then down here maybe we can do something with events. If you look at this, you see that it's it's not a one-to-one mapping. I mean, structurally, certainly there are similarities, but this kind of thinking has actually helped me to come across some interesting new ideas for what this experience and what this offering can be for eVite, specifically. So those are all um, ways that you can start to brainstorm on your own, but I think sometimes there's just no substitute for having multiple heads in the room. And so this next category of ideas is around how to assemble an ad hoc team. And again, this is this idea that you have people around you and you can leverage them. And in fact, they'd probably be kind of flattered if you invited them into the process. So the first thing you can do is you can use sketchboards. So uh, you may have seen a trading card for sketchboards in the Method Cards deck. And if you have one, would you please talk to me afterwards, because I need one. But uh, sketchboards are this idea that we developed an adaptive path. We sort of lucked into them, actually, when we uh, found ourselves in a situation where we needed to transport all of these sketches that we'd been doing, basically, to a client. So we uh, basically just got a big piece of butcher block paper, and we sort of put all our sketches onto it, and we kind of arranged a little bit of a tableau that showed sort of parts of the system that we'd been thinking about, and we also actually put up there some of the inputs to our thinking. So... Uh, important requirements, sort of pieces of inspiration, other kind of strategic ideas. And lo and behold, uh, we have this kind of mood board for uh, experience design, which seems like a cool thing in and of itself. So um, it's, interestingly, it's not actually a terribly novel idea, and I think that's actually fine. That's cool. This uh, quote comes from Delicious. Some guy tagged it on Fli- Delicious, and he said, Sketchboards, a new buzzword for a blatantly obvious technique. <laughs> which is awesome, because they should be. Um, And the idea of this kind of tableau is fun, but what we found that was really interesting was once we sort of tacked it up on the wall at our clients and we started having a conversation about what was on the sketchboards and we invited our clients to do the same, all of a sudden we were able to have a really detailed conversation about strongly sort of visual things with a group of people that hadn't been trained in that kind of language. So it enables people who aren't user experience practitioners to actually have a coherent response to user experience ideas. And they could do it at a really low fidelity actually. We just sketched and we didn't spend a lot of time sketching and then all of a sudden we were having really good quality substantive conversations. So sketchboards enable you to do that. Um, Aside from sketchboards I think there is something to be said for actually getting people brainstorming too. Uh, And one thing that we do a lot at Adaptive Path is we have open design sessions which are kind of like what they sound like. They're sort of a cattle call for anybody to come and to just like, help generate ideas for some problem that one person is dealing with. Um, so we give them Sharpies, and we give them paper, and then somebody just explains the problem, and then we all kind of get sketching. And we, uh, we involve our practitioners, and we involve non-practitioners, because all ideas are equal and fair in this one. Uh, and I think that the uh, pizza is kind of an important part, too, actually, um, because if you do it at a time of day and in a structure where it feels a little bit less... Uh, kind of formal or rigorous, uh, I think it encourages a certain playful kind of involvement from people which actually gets better ideas. You, you wouldn't get the same output if you did this at a meeting at 9.15 in the morning, I think. Um, so open design sessions are great, but if you're working with a group of people who need a little bit of guidance and in, in sort of generating ideas on their own, uh, templates and template-based kind of workshops are really, really helpful. So these are just a couple of templates that uh, I've used recently on projects. Uh, The concept sheet is really basic. You just kind of has a spot for a picture, and then you have uh, spaces to describe kind of what it's like and what it does. Um, Design the box has been spoken about here at the conference before by Jess McMullen in the past, and we we use them a lot at Adaptive Path as well. You basically design the product box for something that doesn't ship in a product, and it kind of forces you to articulate benefits and features and what goes in that starburst and all that good stuff. And design the experience is actually uh, this exercise where you articulate the verbs and the nouns and the adjectives of a product, which actually then map really interestingly to functionality and to sort of experience attributes. But I think the the templates themselves aren't even that important. I think it's the idea of giving a little bit of structure and safe constraints to people who aren't used to brainstorming and then inviting them to start drawing. Uh, If you can't get people to draw though, or you can't sort of organize a session with somebody, I think the best thing at a very minimum is just to start tacking stuff up on the walls where you are. This is something that I should have done when I was in my previous job and I didn't because I held my ideas as sacred until they were complete and I didn't want anybody to see any of my half-baked ideas and what I did is I robbed myself of the opportunity to get really good feedback early on and I also robbed myself of the opportunity to get people to buy in to the process by feeling like they had contributed to it. So, by being open, you actually develop a tremendous amount of goodwill, I think. And... If you are one of those unlucky souls who doesn't even have walls, not even cube walls, I think you can still do something. Uh, Jeff Veen is one of the founders of Adaptive Path, and he has since moved on to Google. And he reportedly walks around Google with his designs in his hands and just asks people what they think. And they tell him. And that, itself, is a great way to solicit feedback. This idea and all the ideas that come before it ultimately are sort of about this, this thing, this idea that we abandon this notion of ourselves as the artiste, as sort of the keeper, the sole keeper of the creative vision, right? Lose the beret and be a guy who facilitates conversations with people where you help them figure out the ideas that are in their head and get them out of their head and put them together in a compelling and cohesive way into a design for a system. Phew, I need a drink, okay. This last category of ideas is around how, once you've done all this brainstorming, you pick the best ideas. And going again back to generative design, this is sort of the second half of the diamond where you say, we've got a lot of ideas. How do we figure out the ones that are most important? Well, Peter Meerholtz has spoken about the importance of having a star to sail your ship by. And this is the notion that there is there's sort of a light ahead of you that you can kind of keep reorienting yourself to as you work and as you develop products, and if you veer, you can realign yourself to that star and sort of make your way there. But what do you use for that star? And there's a lot of different, I think, things, and certainly one of the, uh, kind of the big things that we use and traditionally have always used is business needs. And you, it makes sense, you kind of have to use them because they're the people who are employing you and you want to do the work that you're getting paid for, so that's okay, but, I think organizations are starting to understand that simply building a product that meets business needs doesn't necessarily mean that it will be useful for people. So no good to build it if uh, nobody wants it. So then we get to this point, we're getting to this point I think in our industry where there's an understanding that user needs are important too. And whatever's going on in this guy's head when he's making his invitation, like, should I invite my coworkers, and is two weeks enough time to invite them, those are all important pieces of data that will help you to create a product that answers his questions. But I would argue that even this is not enough, because even if you do, if you make a product that answers all these questions, all you've done is given him functionality that, he, that is good for him. You haven't given him an experience. You haven't created a, a cohesive kind of sense of what it's like to use this product, something that he can latch onto and have a relationship with. And that's why at Adaptive Path we love design principles. Uh, and design principles are kind of a combination of business needs and user needs, but they're sort of, they're sort of plus, they're sort of more than. Uh, so what design principles are is they're a pretty uh, succinct statement of a small number of things that you aim for this product to be from an experiential perspective. It's uh, they're, they should be sort of catchy statements, they should be meaningful, and they should be kind of directed. And they should be unique to the product. So um, easy to use is not a design principle. Every product should be easy to use. And what easy to use means for Flickr is pretty damn different from what easy to use means for TurboTax. And so what you need to do is have design principles that are actually sort of specific to the experience of your product. So that's kind of abstract. It would probably help to see an example, I'm sure. So, For Evite. Well, A business need in this case might be to increase registrations. That's fine. You can do that in a lot of different ways. The user need here might be to help me manage the kind of overflow of communications that are around this invitation. I don't want to have 60 uh, uh, emails in my inbox asking me if I have to bring my own beer. So what do you get when you sort of combine sort of this need and that need? Well, maybe there's a potential to make a system that's a little bit addictive. A system that encourages not just the people who create invitations to come back a lot, but a system that encourages people who are attending a party to sign up too so they can come back and be a part of the buzz around that party and to really be a part of the planning experience. Make it addictive is a very specific design principle for this experience. And it's kind of just something that I made up here. You can imagine there's a lot of different ways you can sort of skin a cat on this one. And and, uh, if you have... Different kinds of design principles essentially will create different experiences. But for this purpose, if we want a system where we make it addictive, then in fact what happens is a lot of those ideas that we've brainstormed early on fall by the wayside. And there's a much smaller handful that actually meets this particular and specific need. And then you're in this awesome situation where you can go to your business people and they may have some ideas for what they want the product to be. Uh, This guy thinks there should be a scrolling news ticker in it. Uh, I've been there before. I don't know about you. Um, But uh, what you can do then is say, no, in fact, this product needs to have this solution, and this is why it makes sense for you. It puts you in a better position to defend your own ideas, and it gives you confidence around them. So those are my sort of three big categories of brainstorming ideas. Uh, In closing, if you're interested in doing any of this stuff, here's how you can get started first thing is to start sketching right away. Uh, You can use conceptual frameworks. You can use word associations. You can get an inspiration library. Whatever you do, I think the most important thing is to force yourself to draw five pictures before you start pushing pixels on one of them. Whatever you do, just start sketching. Second thing you can do is you can start scheduling some workshops. And when I say workshops, I mean invite people to lunch with pizza. Make it ad hoc. Make it light. Make it really fun and friendly but get other people involved in the idea creation process so they can feel a sense of investment in what you come up with. And lastly, draft some design principles. Uh, It's great if you do these with your business partners, but even if you don't and you can't, just do them for yourself. Just use the empathy and the intuition that you have about the users that you service and about the business partners that you service, and then turn that into a statement of what experience you want this product to provide. It will be your North Star. So uh, I'd like to close just on a, a kind of a why it matters note. And I've got, I've got three reasons for why it matters, actually. The first reason is, is you guys, actually, and your professional satisfaction. Because if you don't have confidence in your ideas, you lose a little bit of faith in yourself. And it sort of erodes the flame in your heart for user experience. So if you can feel good about your ideas, if you can sell them and feel like they're strong and have confidence in them, it will make you happier professionally. The second reason is... Um, Actually, when I was preparing this uh, presentation, I got a little bit of feedback that, well, maybe the, um, the generalist is going away and maybe the specialist is starting to sort of take place and we're not gonna have generalists anymore. And I don't agree with that. And I do agree with it at the same time. We're getting more specialists and we're also getting more generalists. And that's because we're successful and our field is spreading. And it's because the web has finally made itself into a legitimate channel for businesses that never thought they would need a website. And it's because innovation is the hottest topic in business right now. And it's because Agile is everywhere, and everywhere there's an Agile team, there should be one user experience team of one. For all these reasons, we are growing and we are spreading. And if we bring our passion and we bring our fire, we will win friends and allies, and that will be good for all of us. But it won't work unless we have ideas that we can be proud of. And the last reason why this matters is because I give a damn, because I care about this passionately. And I care about this so passionately that I'm prepared to make a declaration to you people. My friends, I am a user experience team of one. No matter how many designers Adaptive Path hires, one of these days, it'll be thousands, I will always be a user experience team of one. And this is not a personal statement. This is a battle cry. I'm a user experience team of one, and I'm going to wear this pin that looks like that pin for the rest of this conference and beyond. And I invite everyone else who wants to join the cause in solidarity to come get a pin and wear it around, because we are all user experience teams of one. Thank you very much. Oh, one more thing, by the way. Uh, I'm happy to uh, accept questions, but if you're interested in these ideas and other ideas, check out the Adaptive Path Ideas uh, sort of web- uh, part of the website. We've got a blog, we've got newsletters, we talk about this and lots of other really interesting stuff, so sign up for the newsletter.